netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. Check out all of our podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Well, it's summer movie time, and that brings disaster porn. And in this FX Podcast, we're going to talk with artists behind Independence Day Resurgence. This film has Roland Emmerich returning to a beloved film after 20 years, and I can't stop thinking about how much has changed in visual effects capabilities between the two films, both for the filmmaker and overall visual effects supervisor Volker Engel, who also souped the original film. So we've moved from cloud tanks to simulations, and there were many vendors on this film. Make sure you check out all of the coverage we have over on FX Guide. We've got a long story. We've got an FX Insider exclusive interview with uh, Roland Emmerich that uh, was done by Mike down in Sydney, and uh, you want to check that out. That's only available to our FX Insider members. FX Insiders, a program we created a few years ago to uh, answer the question people asked us, how do you how do we help support FX Guide? We like what you're doing. We really love the stories and articles and, you know, the the site. And um, so we created the FX Insider program to give people a way to contribute to FX Guide and help us defray costs of operating the site. So check that out over at fxguide.com. Uh, just check out the FX Insider tab at the top of the site. So I saw Roland Emmerich recently on a local LA station, KTLA, and he was asked about the visual effects process. Basically, the anchors were asking him, you know, how involved are you with the visual effects? Kind of dismissing it like he wouldn't be. And he said, no, of course, I'm very involved in what you do these days is cast visual effects companies like actors for their special abilities. And certainly, Scanline has made its bones as a company early on, specializing in simulations, water, things like that. And in this podcast, we're going to focus on the work done at Scanline. First, we're going to speak with visual effects supervisor Brian Grill, and then with Musin Musavi, who's also known as Momo, and you'll hear him referred to that in the podcast, the digital effects supervisor. So let's jump in now to that interview, starting with Mike Seymour speaking with Brian Grill. So we really appreciate having a chance to talk to you. We've um we've had a really good time uh, talking to uh, Roland and Volker, and of course they both speak very highly of your work. This is a really a big picture for you guys, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, every time we have uh, worked with Roland in the past, it's a big picture. I guess this is big in every respect of the word, right? Like obviously from a production point of view, it's big, but also just, boy, did you guys have to try and nail scale in some of your shots. Yeah, that was the that was probably the most difficult part, you know, at the beginning, just kind of when we first seen the concepts and and talking through what was going on, and it even gotten gotten to the point where we were talking about the mothership, and um, just as we were just wrapping our heads around the the scale, um, Roland went and made it like, you know, almost twice as big. Wow. <laughs> After that, so we were like, "Oh, okay. Now, what do we do?" <laughs> it's an interesting problem, isn't it? Um, something that's like three thousand miles, kind of roughly across. It's just, it's just so hard for anyone to get their head around how big that actually is. Was it a sort of, um, yeah, important that you actually kind of got the size in any kind of real sense, or did it just have to be super big? Well, I think what we did was we. Um, you know, Folker and his team, they did some previs, and then we, when they handed off some of the shots, you know, we'd get it, and then we'd do a first round, and, you know, Roland would say, you know, I want it bigger. 
You know, I want um, I want to see it bigger. And you know, there were some shots that we uh, helped design early on that um, that uh, never made it into the movie, but it you know it really showed the progression of the ship and and how uh, the scale worked against the Earth. And I think uh, we ended up with um, you know just a, a few shots where you actually just see the the ship on the earth like it's uh like the earth has a, a hat on <laughs> it's how big it is so now you picked up the sequence as the mothership was uh entering the atmosphere is that right yeah so i guess the thing is in space no atmosphere you should be able to see for forever um that has a problem in sort of denoting sort of scale similarly once it enters the yeah. atmosphere there's so much you know, vaporization, clouds, dust, everything else around it that you kind of can't see the ship and now you can't work out its scale because you can't even see the darn thing. It's a, it's a, a sort of a, a lose-lose scenario from a simple design point of view. Yeah, because in order to really make the scale work, like especially when it was on the uh, flying, we were on the earth watching it fly over or as it was landing was the uh, the curvature of the earth. So basically... The, 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 but you, you don't think about it. You look at the horizon, which is roughly, you know, if you're roughly 12 miles on a clear day, but what you don't realize is that the earth is curving. So even if this thing, you know, this thing is so big that you, it would just automatically be cut off by the earth's um, curvature. So it already kind of truncates, you know, something that you would want to see for, you know, to go on and on. It's really one of the things that you used very effectively was just the framing and blocking of the shot. In other words, we'd have these shots that in any other sense would be uh, such a wide shot as to not show anything in any detail. And then the ship would only fit in the corner of frame. Right. Yeah, it's, again, it was the the scale um, wrapping our heads around it was it took a while and it took a lot of uh, for us to go back and forth like just taking the model for example and just a a picture with the sky and then just taking that and kind of finding out where how much haze you know how far you know how much would we actually see you know um the way i was explaining it was to uh the artist that i w- was working with like on a um uh, on a clear night, for example, if you're like in the city, when you look towards the horizon, um, you know, you're going to get a lot more atmosphere. But when you look straight up, you know, there's, uh, you know, especially if it's clear, you know, you can see all the stars. So you can, you know, but when you look down towards the horizon, that's when, so that's kind of what we use as a gauge. So right. if we were looking more up, it, you know, if it, it, there was less haze or atmosphere unless there was a cloud you know covering but as you were looking more towards the horizon we were able to use that as a gauge to kind of set it back further away so one of the things that helped with scale as it's entering the atmosphere for me is you've got these sort of shots of cloud slash whatever turbulence of vapor forming around the sort of outside of the hard sort of solid and that it seems to have an incredibly high frequency and so because it's so sort of detailed in its frequency you tend to think of it as being 
you know, like these clouds are all like very small and very tight. And that gives me a sort of a sense of scale. Is that, is that something that easily comes in terms of just the CG? Because, you know, that's, it's an odd scale for us to be looking at something at. Yeah, no, that actually is not something easily, uh, uh, what, you, you know, our first Sims, what it tends to be is, um, you know, bigger puffs and bigger flames. So, um, which again, like you said, anything that covered too much of an area because at any given point, an area, like for example, the toes that kind of land uh, on the earth, those are basically 18 kilometers in, in width. So, you know, if you have a fire or a, a piece of smoke that's coming off of it and it covers, you know, an eighth of it, you know, that's one big flame. I mean, that's like the, the size of a, of a, a small town. So uh, we were very conscious of that and it took us a while before we were able to uh, find that, that point of where there was enough um, um, frequency and breakup so that you were able to really soak in the whole thing and not and still make it feel like it was um, big in scale. Yeah, because I mean, in, if we go back to the sort of dawn of visual effects when people were doing things with uh, miniatures and uh, you know fluids were actually done with with tanks, it was always a real problem scaling, right? Because of the nature of yeah. a lot of these phenomena, they have kind of micro sort of disturbances and they're bigger and bigger, and you kind of scale it and it just goes wrong because we're not used to, I guess, looking at them. Um, you guys are some of the most experienced simulators in the world in this kind of area. I was just wondering, like, was the smoke and fire harder to get the scale in or was the, the water harder to get the scale in? Like, wh where was it, from a Sims point of view, easiest or, or more difficult? Well, I think they both had their own challenges and they were both equally as hard. Um, for example, like when the, the foot um, hits the water and creates a 700-foot tidal wave and then on top of that tidal wave um, are all these, because it happens in the Gulf of Mexico, so uh, there's all these oil rigs, um, uh, container ships, oil container ships, like all these um, pretty large things to begin with, even you know, if you were just uh, taking a cruise out into the ocean, and then having this wave come up, and then all those things turn to little specks, uh, the one shot we had in the movie um, uh, where we had that big wave and, you know, at its widest form, uh, we really had to use uh, smoke, fire explosions to really show the scale of the things that we, it was really hard to see because they were so small. Uh, in that one shot, we probably had over, you know, three, 300 different ships or oil uh Derricks or something like that, but they were just really hard to to see, especially because it was in a in in its own shadow. But um, just that scale was so was so big um, that you, you just can't comprehend. Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, you know you take sprinkles in a bathtub, and you know you you lift your hands out with all you know you're only going to get a few of those sprinkles. Um, or it's just, uh, yeah. you know, you just use, you use your, your, your best, um, 
uh, best, you know, use your eye to get the best intention of what the shot is. One of the things that really fascinates me about the sim work is that, um, of course, in the real world, and I've, I've hit this point with other people in the past, that, that gravity just doesn't change. And so if I see something falling and it's really, really big uh, and it takes a long time to move through frame, then I know it's big because I don't even need to know anything else in the shot. I just know that things fall no matter what at a certain rate. And if it was small and close to me, it'd get through shot in a frame and a half. And if it's a really, really big thing, really, really long way away, it's going to take, you know, seconds to get through shot. But that trouble of that is that once you get these massively big things that you're talking about, it doesn't actually make for fast cutting material because theoretically anything is going to take an enormously long time to a bit of debris falling off one of these feet, for example, should take for forever to land at the bottom just because no matter, you know, what it is, gravity runs at the same rate. Yeah. Um, like, again, that was like uh, in 2012, uh, uh, Scanline had done the tidal wave coming over the Himalayas. Yep. So just exactly what you said the very first sim was based off of real world scale and real world like the height of these mountains how much water and it literally took two minutes for all the water to come over and rush down the himalayas so that won't work in a roland emmerich movie or you know for any movie for that matter so you you kind of you kind of have to have that like little bit of movie magic where, you know, there's enough happening in the scene to that's slow enough, but yet, you know, is can propel you into, uh, you know, realism. And then also obviously into the next shot without taking two minutes. And yet that, that very slowness of falling is what gives me scale. So, yeah. So is that you? Are you sitting there kind of sitting there? Because obviously it is artistic at this point. We're not making a documentary. So are you sitting there saying, look, I need this to break the laws and run three times faster? Or do you start as a baseline of um, let's get reality and I know it's not going to be any good, but then we'll show it and discuss it with Volker and and, uh, Roland or whatever and just try and work out where we cheat? Well, I think it starts in in development. You know, we don't necessarily have like shots per se. Uh, For example, uh, when we started on the movie, um, a lot of the work that we were doing for the movie was originally concepted. There was uh, 17 shots that Volker, uh, Roland, and uh, design team, uh, they concepted out. And those 17 uh, paintings uh, actually became what uh, greenlit the movie. Yeah, the trickster pictures. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so when we started, uh, we got these, these reference, uh, paintings and then we were just start, um, doing our own, uh, Devel based off those paintings. And because we didn't have a cut yet, you know, we would start with, um, with a, a longer shot, uh, you know, making sure we get enough pre-roll of our Sims, um, et cetera, and then work from there. And then once we, um, started getting turnovers of actually how the, uh, the shots were going to fit into the, into the, uh, into the movie. Um, we would, uh, sometimes we would give them our Devel shots longer and then they would use those to feel, to feel out, you know, if it needed to be, maybe they only selected a section of it, 
Maybe they um, sped it up a little bit in order to work. But some of those bigger shots were actually um, longer and then given to editorial for them to kind of find the pacing, the best pacing for it to work in the movie. So we've been talking a lot about Sims. Talk to me a little bit about the model. Was the actual mothership itself um, an asset that you got or you built? Uh, we got a previs version of it. And then it was uh, because we were, I believe we were like the first vendor to come on and uh, a lot of our shots uh, dealt with um, the mothership. So we got the previs version. We got some quick times that that showed, you know, basic animation of how the legs came out and unfolded and that sort of thing. And so we went in and the and started putting putting that together. The big the big part was um, the the design on the ship. Uh, if you remember in the, the original Independence Day, uh, those models that Fulker and his team built, you know, had a lot of detail and just this like. Um, like these symbols and, you know, we, we had no idea like what those symbols meant or if they did mean something. Um, so we basically had to come up with very small sections of the ship because the ship itself is so huge. So we would take panels of the ship. We would work on those panels, come up with a design language uh, with the symbols and or um, the amount of detail that we would see and then we would um, basically use those to then uh, place on the other parts of the ship. And that's generally what we did. We got a basic design language, basic um, size of detail, and uh, which covered the whole ship. But um, each vendor, for example, like most of our shots, uh, we dealt with just the, uh, the feet, which are in this in when it comes to the whole size of the ship i mean it is such a small aspect of it so we did a lot of detailing in the in the parts of the movie that we were working on and so as we handed off the model which was in a um uh i would say a 50 percent um part of completion because i say 50 percent in that if it was a a very wide shot from uh, outer space, it would probably work fine. But as you started getting closer right. into it, um, you know, it needed to be detailed out uh, depending on where, what part of the ship and what they were, uh, where we were looking at. So that, you know, the, it made it difficult, I believe, you know, for a lot of the other vendors, but it was really the only way to go because each part of the ship kind of had its own like sense of being um it was you know it because it's three thousand miles in dia diameter there there's nothing like you could you would never see something repeated if you're seeing um a hundred miles you know of it i mean that's how like crazy it was <laughs> that you know you, you don't think of it like that but a hundred miles you know, when do you see a hundred miles worth of any asset? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You no, see skies. Extreme. Yeah, and you, you, went lo you went a lot longer than just a hundred miles, right? So yeah. yeah, and you know, so the a lot of the different vendors in talking to them afterwards, 
because what we did, we did a lot of uh, painting because you really just can't go in and start modeling a lot of detail. So a lot of times what we, we started off with just painting, getting approvals, and then depending on the shot, uh, if it didn't move a lot and we were able to actually project, we would project onto the model. And if it was a, um, a shot where there was a lot of movement, then we would um, model uh, as much detail as we could uh, depending on the camera movement. So, so each, each shot had its own type of complexities um, in order to you know, keep the scale, but also uh, create this detail. And what were you rendering in? Uh, everything we render in is uh, through Max. Right. And V-Ray. Yeah. So uh, presumably the V-Ray helped you by being pretty much a physically based sort of model in terms of getting that natural look at the lighting. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we do pretty well with it. And, you know, obviously all, all our shows, um, we have a lot of people who know all the bells and whistles. Um, so you got to destroy a bunch of other things as part of this ship. Uh, I think Singapore and London, uh, certainly. Um, talk to me about the complexity in doing these shots when, of course, we don't need you to come back to London multiple times through the movie. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't use all your budget building London, for example, because it wasn't the star of the, of the film. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think one, one, of the mo one of the things that Roland was trying to show um, especially like in uh, Washington, uh, that, you know, cities that got destroyed were rebuilt. Uh, Washington got rebuilt and looked, um, you know, a lot different than, uh, than it did 20 years ago. Uh, when it came to London, it was kind of that same situation. You know, they did a lot of design work in designing a, a futuristic London. And uh, when it came down to how much work would go into creating that, and then looking at the shots that we were doing, the you know the the one thing that kept coming back was we didn't want to, um, if we really wanted to be London, we needed to be recognizable, especially with all the chaos happening. Um, so uh, so we kind of had to um, back off a little bit on the the futuristic or rebuilding of London, just so that we can still you know. Uh, keep some of the landmarks uh, visible so, you know, instantly when they come through the clouds and they're over London and over the Thames, you knew exactly where you were. Uh, we did change up some buildings. We added some buildings. We put some uh, uh, bigger buildings in the background, that type of thing, just to break up the skyline to make it feel like it wasn't exactly the same. But um, for the most part, uh, you know, we're saying that they rebuilt London, uh, you know, very, um, very close to how it was 20 years ago. And another thing that you did, which I wasn't expecting in the film, it was nice uh, kind of sort of surprise, was when uh, we had the reveal in Africa of the city destroyer. And that was one of your uh, sequences, right? Yes. Yeah, we did uh, pretty much all the, the shots in Africa. Um, that was a challenge in itself uh, to build the city destroyer because, you know, we... We weren't really think of it, thinking of that. We were thinking of the mothership because yeah. that was the uh, that was you know the new ship. But um, uh, surprisingly, there wasn't a lot of material uh, left from the original movie. Volker had um, uh, some pictures that he took while they while they were building the model, um, 
and you know, and what was interesting was we would get it some of these pictures and we'll go, oh, here's some detail over here. But then we'd look at the movie and we're like, oh, how come that detail's not there? And we go back to Folker and he's like, oh yeah, we we kind of built that and then we scrapped that and we redesigned it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, we <laughs> have you pictures. guys are like the you guys are like the worst Comic Con fans, you know, like how come in shot four one three eight that that it wasn't exactly the same? And like, yeah, yeah, just because well, we... well, yeah, that's that's our job. I mean, yeah. to to uh, recreate something, sure. you know, so that it's again, you know, on first view, you know, you have no doubt of what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so uh, the the destroyer was. Uh, definitely um, a build on its own where, uh, you know, we had to uh, go to Volker a lot because you know, he was actually the probably the only person who had the most experience with uh, with that model. I even asked him, I'm like, isn't there a model like lying around in some storage area? Can't we just grab it? And he's like, and I think he said there was a model that was bought and in some like Hard Rock or Planet Hollywood in like Florida somewhere. And I'm like, well, can I have the address? Because I'll go there right now and take some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's, of course, the other sort of big thing that um, falls really in your wheelhouse was the uh, plasma drill, the, um, the idea of it, you know, trying to hit the core. Um, which again, you know, like it seems, it's in, in any other film that would be a big sequence in of its own right. But kind of in this film, it was uh, almost dwarfed by the other stuff. But uh, what challenges did that present? Well, it, originally, uh, it's funny you said that because um, we we did a lot of development, and also because the beam, we we the the beam itself, we we uh, used the actual beam from the first movie as a reference. Uh, the beam in the first movie, you know, as we see the um, Empire State Building uh, um, being uh, uh, demolished and, you know, other uh, landmarks. So we took that idea into the, uh, the beam for the drill. There, there was a concept that, uh, that they gave us, which the beam as it started, but then it had an outer side beam. And then, you know, how does this beam work? you know, hitting the water and, you know, basically creating this maelstrom that just gets deeper and deeper. So originally that sequence um, happened uh, where you, you know, you saw it full frame in all its glory. And eventually somewhere through the movie, those shots became just on the video screens. So, uh, so it never was featured like one-to-one, it was only featured as seeing it uh, on the video screens from the, um, you know, the different, uh, uh, from Area 51. So, uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, took a lot of that development and, you know, it worked, it worked fine, but, you know, at a certain point, once we realized, because we had like a, an 800 frame sim of the whole thing where it started, hit the water, and then that actually got cut up and used in the video screens. And then we went in and then uh, uh, just did them as per shots, uh, so they'd work uh, for those sh- for the shots in the cut. Just before I lose you, what was the split between uh, the two offices? 
Um, I would say that uh, probably uh, 80, 20, 80 in Vancouver and 20% in, uh, in LA. I think uh, we had most, mostly compositing and um, some lighting and a little bit of effects in LA. And then um, uh, Vancouver shop uh, dealt mostly with the, um, the main uh, pipeline, asset builds, that type of thing. Well, it's been uh, really good talking to you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. How are you, Momo? Brian said I should call you Momo. Oh, I'm pretty, oh you know me, Momo. Momo. That's great. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, cool, I'm good. So, Momo, you guys had a film that was absolutely terrific in Independence Day, but your shots, the company's shots, tended to get into the trailer, which is kind of great in one sense and kind of mean in another because they were really hard shots. What was the kind of pressure like to deliver so much so early in so high profile away? I think the the biggest uh, problem which you probably have have heard from the other vendors and Brian as well uh, was the the overall concept of scale. I think that a uh, lot of the, the the techniques and the you know the the complexity of the shots uh, was the fact that uh, at the end of the projects after you know a year of working and everything things was pretty clear. But early on we were trying to work on that first uh, trailer. Uh, it was just a very fuzzy era of um, what works and what not and uh, how to kind of visualize the huge, massive scale of the mothership in terms of the model, in terms of the simulations, in terms of the storytelling. Uh, it was it was really hard because what we got from them uh, originally was just a few boards. Uh, they did not even have previous for most of the shots that we had. It was just a few boards, so we had to kind of uh, go through and uh, conceptually visualize what is going on. Now, the problem with that was that we did a few concepts, obviously. We, you know, unlocked a few possibilities and kind of understood what Roland wants on just a single frame here and there. Uh, but then really quickly found out that you can't do all of it on a concept level. It has to move. It has to uh, evolve to be able to judge it. Uh, and obviously, these are very complex shots, so you can't just go and, you know, do multiple simulations right away. But that's exactly what happened. On a few of these shots at the very, very beginning, even though we had no no previous approved, no layout approved, no. We just took a few of these uh, boards and we did a power kind of work scenario for, I believe, two weeks it was that we went through and kind of did a nice model quickly, a work in progress version. Uh, we did a quick layout, we pushed it through and we did high-end advanced simulations, right? Really, really as much as we could in that, that two week. Um, once Roland saw it, then I think that was like the key moment that because he was not looking at natural simulations and bigger scale events, it was much easier to iterate and figure out what it was. So that that quick throwaway work that we did for the two weeks helped us to to give him a, a very easy tool to understand the overall scope of the sequence. And then from there on, it was a bit easier to go to the layouts, come up with the ideas and, uh, you know, uh, do the normal scenario of uh, just department by department to push it all the way through. Brian and I were discussing the, earlier about the complexity of having to give such high frequency simulations because, of course, the the sort of it's the tiny detail that that helps us with scale as well as the fact that you know like the fires or the explosions all have to be small, otherwise they'd be, you know, sort of seventeen kilometers or twenty five or hundred kilometers away across fires, and so everything's sort of small and tight. Which leads me to the question: in terms of like the pipeline, I guess. Where was the sort of the stress points? Was it 
image complexity in terms of the render? Was it caches in terms of the sims or was it um, sort of polys in terms of the geometry? No, no, I think the, the, the biggest challenge we had was, again, scale. Not this time, not necessarily just conceptually, also technically, is that when you have um, a huge, huge object far away from the camera, you have seen that in the trailer shots where you see the big yep. toe behind the uh, behind board at the front of the camera, you have a huge, massive object, which is, uh, in terms of uh, dimension, is just enormous. It's far in the background, and you have a small object close to the camera. When you have that kind of scenario, that's something called a precision error that you get in any application, Maya or Max, it doesn't matter. And the precision error is that your numbers are actually going to get rounded into different numbers, which is bad, bad for simulations. Now, it's very hard to kind of work in these scenes because, uh, you know, if you wouldn't have the small boat, everything would be fine. But because you have things close to the camera at different levels, it makes it really difficult. So what we ended up uh, doing is that we came up with a scenario where you could publish a scene out of layout in one scale, in the one-to-one -one scale, and then as you were building the scene uh, and your you know, rendering or simulation package, you would bring it in at any specific scale you wanted. So let's say I bring in my mothership into a thousand scale or smaller, so I can work in that right. specific scale. I bring my boat into a one-to-one -one scale, and then once the simulation is done, uh, I also publish my camera into a specific scale. So I would be able to build multiple different scale of the same scene uh, for different departments, it gets rendered, and we also developed uh, a little deep scale node that you would actually enuke and be able to take all of that data if you wanted to deep composite them still to be able to manipulate and get the same you know uh, scale and then combine them properly. That was the only way at the end to be able to you know work on various different uh, scales. It was also good for the simulation because sometimes aside of the precision error that you get, it's good to simulate in a different scale than the original one-to-one -one scale just for the creative purposes. And it kind of gave us that flexibility to be able to do that. Well, I didn't realize. So this was actually a deep pipeline? Yeah, yeah. We did, uh, what would be developed, uh, I've done before a lot of uh, smoke and fire, but you know, this one was newing from the beginning that's going to be heavily, uh, we kind of further developed all the smoke and fire simulation pipeline we had for Flowline. And part of that, part of that was to uh, render volumetric uh, Flowline data with deep information. And we had a lot of, lot of custom um, exports that we actually built in V-Ray to be able to uh, put those information out. And we were able to do a lot of deep compositing with the volumetrics. We were a bit skeptic at the beginning, but it turned out to be very helpful for those big shots with a lot of clouds and the smoke and fire. Um, yeah. Mama, you must have racked up some pretty serious disk space because your, your caches for your sims must have been enormous. And then, of course, the deep caches get carried all the way through to final compositing. So that's like... A... Yes, yes. To give you, to give you an example, uh, you know, the way, the way Flowline works, and I didn't believe it before I came to Scanline, but it is really true. And it is a fact that uh, when you're doing a simulation of that mothership, but it, it's huge. As you're talking about, if you, you know, traditionally wanted to sim this in something like Houdini or Filmfix or anything that traditionally getting used out, out there, you would probably put a thousand containers in there to combine it. In Flowline, it's one simulation. It, it becomes one sim that, yes, it gets distributed over the, the farm, over multiple different uh, renderer and simulation nodes, but it's still one simulation. And if something small goes wrong with it, you don't sim that section only. It's, it's crazy that it's easier to send the whole simulation to the farm again to get that 5% fix than try to just get that 5% fix and kind of composite it together. Um, so now 
to give you an example, in some of these shots where we had, you know, half the mothership in fire and smoke, one iteration that would simulate overnight only, so it's really a quick simulation, and overnight only, it would be at over 10 terabyte of data, only one iteration. And if you think about that, we, we went through a lot of iteration. Often, even when the guys are simulating, they send like six, seven different iterations at the same time to the farm with different settings over the weekend to kind of get you know, the look of the, the fire with faster turbulence or slower turbulence. You kind of send it off at night, you come in the morning and you have over 100 terabyte data uh, simulated all uh, at the same time. Um, it might be my um, yeah. it might be my accent, but were you saying iterations there? Which word were you saying? Now? Yeah, it, iterations. That's right. right. Iterations. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's an Australian yeah. uh, accent problem. <laughs> so, right, right. So yeah, I mean, uh, extraordinary amounts of uh, data and processing. How how big is your farm these days? Uh, I don't have the exact numbers. I can definitely email it to you, but I can only say it's enormous. Yeah, like, I the one thing that uh, we don't really know much here about is oh, we don't have capacity in the farm or, uh, you know, it doesn't work on the farm or, you know, we, we can't render because, you know, it's running out of nodes. So it is, it is, it's a lot and it's prioritized to be used for the simulations. Uh, so if, if we go into that scenario where we have to prioritize uh, across the board, the simulations are taking high priority and they have dedicated uh, nodes on the farm. So um, that's a very integrated system, isn't it? I mean, you obviously have Vancouver, you have uh, LA and stuff, but you work as a seamless kind of production unit in the sense that you don't split off and say, you guys do one shot, I'll do another shot. You tend to run, um, you know, 3D in one area, comp in another, but on the same kind of images or sequences. Yes, you know, Vancouver and LA, um, it is, uh, if, if, if Brian has mentioned that uh, we run everything over PC over IP, so the entire infrastructure, everything is in LA completely. So all the nodes, all the servers, all the machines. And we have a dedicated uh, gigabit connection between Scanlon Vancouver and Scanlon LA, in which um, we basically run everything in Vancouver over PC over IP. And it's crazy. I mean, it is um, when I joined the place uh, for the first six months, even though we had about 200 people working with two 2K monitors on PCORP, I didn't know that my machine wasn't there. <laughs> uh, you didn't see any lag or any problem. So you're looking at full 2K on two monitors, 200 people running it in real time. Uh, so it's a dedicated uh, connection that we have that was customly built uh, with, a, with a partner company, I believe, that uh, they work with. Um, so everything is on one server. Everything, everyone is working in the same place. And uh, so that's, I think, the first problem. I come from Pixelmono where we had 10 uh, different facilities and that was probably the biggest problem that we had to be able to work on the same files. But here, this doesn't exist. You can pick up the same file if it was done in LA or Vancouver. And you know, in terms of how we split the sequences, you know, I supervise Vancouver, Brian supervises LA, and it, it pretty much becomes based on the availability and the, the, the collection of talent for the specific sequence of shot. We say this is a Vancouver shot because it has a lot of destruction or it has a certain type of water in it that we're very comfortable based on the history of the team to do it in Vancouver or vice versa. This is a shot that has uh, needs uh, a group of ninja compositors, let's put it this way. And you know we happen to have better compositors in, in, in LA. And that's how we basically split the shots. You, you joined uh, Scanline in about what, 2013 for a good day to die hard? Is that right? I joined, uh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's about the time I joined, yeah. Um, and so uh, I wanted to discuss a couple of things like the scale we've just sort of discussed, but at the other end of the spectrum, Scanline's work also included the helicopter rescue, didn't it? Which is like a completely different scale. Yes, 
Yes, the Washington sequence, right? Yeah, exactly. The Washington sequence at the uh, helicopter escape. Yeah. Yeah. So it is uh, in terms of the scale. Originally, when we talked about the the mothership itself, if I remember correctly, it was about four thousand kilometer. I think that was the 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 disc uh, diameter of the of the mothership. Uh, you know, we thought it was set in a stone, and we were trying to kind of make logic and sense out of it. And we were very academic at the beginning to try to kind of attack everything with some sort of logic. And then we got we hit the point that you know we literally had a call with Roland, and I remember he's saying that he doesn't want to ever hear about logic problems. That if if it looks cool, it doesn't matter. Uh, don't think about the logic. So as part of that, we ended up scaling the various aspects of the mothership differently from shot to shot. So you have sequences where it's a one-to-one scale, you know, looking at it from you know, outside of uh, the Earth atmosphere, and it's huge and it's massive. But then you go inside, let's say, Galveston, in the boat scape sequence, and uh, the tow, which was a one-to-one scale, was about, I believe, was about 22 kilometer wide. It's a huge scenario. Now, you put that 22 kilometer wide into Washington, it literally covers the entire city, right? You can't put three of them as you have seen in the trailer. So you kind of end up messing around with the scale of the various aspects of it uh, just to be able to make it work in that uh, composition or in that shot. Now, compositionally, it sounds like, sure, why not? It makes sense, but it does create a problem with the fact that you have done your simulation on a certain scale. You have done your procedural shader on a certain scale. You have done many things, like even your displacement value and your bump value and many things that are procedurally driven from world scale it all becomes a variable when you change the scale from shot to shot. And that's where we had to kind of develop this metadata pipeline to kind of out of layout say, this is one-to-one, this is a center scale, this is a fifth scale. It was all driven through shotguns. So you would basically throw the scene, and as you're loading your shader, it would know that, oh, this is a fifth scale. So I would go and tweak all the parameters that are uh, world units related to make sure it looks exactly the same or the same with the simulation, that I'm simulating a fire that needs to look like a one-to-one scale, but in this scene, we happen to scale the mothership down uh, by 100 times, right? So let's tweak all the parameters that could be, you know, hundreds of those parameters across the, the big simulation networks that we have that needs to be adjusted to make it look the same. But I was thinking of this with Brian, but it's not just the sort of, um, I mean, obviously the shaders and the procedural stuff is one thing, but gravity doesn't scale, obviously, something sort of, you know, falls at the right. same rate. And so if you just did everything mathematically correctly, things would take an enormously long time to happen on screen, which isn't very dramatically right. good. Th- that is right. That is right. We, had, we, did, uh, we did originally, I remember we started with the Singapore uh, shots. That was literally the first group of shots that we started to work on. They were full CG and they didn't re- require much of a uh, plate. So uh, we, we, we thought a lot about the speed of things going up, the scale of the mothership, and you know when they would reach the clouds and the atmosphere and level of the different layers of atmospheres. Uh, and that would really hit a wall conceptually with Roland because it was too much, too, too much logic, you know, too, too much logic. And we kind of dropped all of that down. We said, just, you know, go with the, uh, go with the visual interest. And if it looks cool, it doesn't matter if, it, if it's falling twice faster or if it's breaking twice slower. Uh, that type of thing. But I got into this discussion because of the rooftop rescue in DC. Um, so just to come back to that, like was right. was that kind of the smaller scale upon which you worked at where um, uh, the hospital collapses? Was that the kind of the the most intimate, I guess, of your work? 
Uh, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, we had we had um, we had the Washington sequence, obviously, which is it's very iconic because you're in Washington, you're around the White House, and uh, it's a very dramatic moment of the film, which something dramatic happens uh, to one of the actors uh, and actresses. So it is. It is. Uh, it was an important section. It was. Uh, I think the big problem in there was that uh, editorial. Uh, it, it came to a locked edit just much too late in terms of the production schedule that we had. Uh, so we had to constantly change and tweak and still have this little time at the end left to, to deliver uh, the good looking shots. But yeah, in terms of complexity, you had everything. You didn't have water in there. I think that, that made it a bit simpler, but you had the scale, you had the mothership, you had the toes in there, you had uh, huge environments, like the entire uh, Washington or big section of Washington, which we, I don't know if Brian mentioned, we used City Engine for the first time to kind of you know, collaborate and elaborate and get all of that into into a digital environment instead of a map painting. Did you use and that yeah, in London as had, well? City Engine? Uh, in London, uh, it was a different scenario. So when we started City Engine, it was uh, you know it was new to us and we wanted to nicely integrate that into our pipeline. Uh, we have a lot of procedural um, kind of instancing systems that we have written for We really wanted to make sure it basically takes benefit of all of that. So it took a while to integrate it into our pipeline, and we were not sure if we can hit it. So for London, we kind of did a plate shoot, organized it here remotely with a, uh, in a helicopter shoot in London, which took us uh, a good time to, to figure out because they had a lot of restriction at that point in London. We shot the plates in London, and the main area around the, uh, the river, we kind of completely modeled it just traditionally. Uh, so the London was a mixture of plates and uh, but, you know, if, but if I'm right, the, even with the restrictions in London, it's still a lot easier to fly around uh, Big Ben than it is around uh, the White House, and that Washington's a real clamp. Yeah, down. absolutely. Yeah. No, the problem we had, though, the problem we had, though, we have shots. Once you see the film, that uh, the main one of this little uh, tug, space tugs that they have, it basically dives down from a very wide shot, and it gets really close to the water. So you're going from this this plate into you know uh, a digital transition. Uh, and that was pretty challenging to actually make that work so, so we can take benefit of the plate still. Um, yeah. And then in, in Washington, the, you know, the, the, the city engine and stuff that really paid, paid off really well because even though we would be able to traditionally do matte painting, it was much easier, much easier to, to um, change the light direction. And it turned out looking so good that, you know, they couldn't even tell on the compositing if that was a matte painting or if that was... Uh, did you, did you use matte painting in the Africa stuff for the City Destroyer? Yes, yes. That was... That was uh, for the City Destroyer, no. So that was... Um, we did start doing that, but then as the number of shots grew and we had different angles and different perspectives of it, uh, we soon realized that that wouldn't work. So we basically started to build... Uh, a full scale version of the, um, you know, full detailed version of the uh, the mothership. That was that was really tricky. It was probably even trickier, or more complicated than the mothership because they did this thing 20 years ago, and they, uh, you know, they had a lot of obviously love and time and energy and dedication went into it, and they wanted to make sure it is exactly the same. But the problem was that they did not have much of the material available. We only had uh, a few references that they still had in the archive, and obviously the film itself, uh, but not all the angles that we needed to have for for this film. Uh, so that was a lot of back and forth. You know, you would actually match it to one, and then Roland would find a poster from 20 years ago somewhere, some different angle. As oh, wait a moment, that doesn't look like this. So a lot of back and forth went into that to to be able to match it as close as we can. 
Yeah, there is that interesting historical aspect, isn't it? Like you want to be faithful, but um, as I was joking with Brian, like uh, you can also get to a point where the production's like, well, we just did that because it looked cool. And you guys are like... Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. But you um, remember that uh, that cloud tank uh, shot that they had in the first yeah, one? Yeah, massively. Yeah, cool. that was that was actually that was pretty tricky to even try to get something that looks like that, you know, because it's still a real thing. It's it's not doesn't have that simulation look to it. Um, so he still wanted to, even though the things was a thousand times bigger, to have some of that aspect uh, in it. That well, I'd have to say, if anyone was going to produce a simulation of a look like a cloud tank, I'd have put my money on you guys. <laughs> it seems to be right, <laughs> right in your wheelhouse. Right. <laughs> Um, right. Well, it's been great talking to you, Momo. Thank you so much for taking time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, and thanks, Mike, and thanks to Brian and Musan for um, joining us on this FX podcast. I've known Brian for many years, uh, going back to the early days at Digital Domain, so it's great to hear what they're up to and, and uh, work on this movie. Before we close out, I mentioned the FX Insider program at the beginning. Um, I wanted to mention FX PhD. Make sure you check out what we're doing over there now, fxphd.com, our sister training site. We've got the all-you-can-eat option now where you can basically pay a monthly fee and stream classes from our library, new stuff, old stuff. Just check it out, fxphd.com. Uh, if you're in visual effects, I think you'll find many classes that would help you enhance and take your career to the next level. And, uh, you know, one of the things... We hear a lot from people that when we talk to them about FX PhD is, you know, how they've been in one area of the business and thought, you know, I'd really like to learn more about 3D tracking and, you know, taking classes, even though they may not be doing that right now. And just understanding the concepts and learning and, you know, eventually making a move into that area. Or somebody comes along and says, God, we got this shot. We got a 3D track and we don't have somebody in the house. And some, you can raise your hand and say, hey, I, I'll take a whack at it, you know. So anyway, check that out. Um, I mentioned at the top, we also do other podcasts, so check out the BFX show where we review visual effects and current releases. And also we go back and pick up classic films um, and, and review them and talk about the visual effects. And then the RC podcast covers digital cinematography, production, things like that. So check out all the podcasts, uh, FX Guide TV as well, our HD video podcast we've been doing for years. So check that out over at the site, fxguide.com. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.